folks, candidate everyone's listener numbers have been improving. It took 24 days for our first 100 listens, then 20 days for the next, then 11 days for the third, and 9 days to get to 400. This is a very nice progression. Of course, I know it is small time. Some podcasts have thousands of listeners a day. But you know what? I think we really have to grade things on a curve. Those podcasts have exciting and informative content. And this podcast has, well, me. Considering the content, 500 listens is awesome. And I want to thank you all for your self-sacrifice in bringing us the success we've seen so far. All that said, this tremendous success hasn't been free. As longtime listeners know, this campaign has a hard cap on spending. We can spend $5,000 before we have to report to the Federal Elections Commission. Naturally, we want to avoid that. But I do keep you all informed about our campaign spending, and January was a big month. By the end of December, this campaign had spent $41, but in January alone, we spent another $39. We are now up to $70. How much is that per listen? It's just about 14 cents. It might seem like I'm paying a lot to get a few friends, but you have to grade me on a curve. At the other end of the campaign spending spectrum is Michael Bloomberg. The dude has spent $200 million, but he received 0% of the vote in Iowa. 0%. I'm paying $0.14 a download. He's paying, at a minimum, $200 million a vote. That said, we shouldn't be too harsh on Michael Bloomberg. After all, we are grading on a curve. Bloomberg, perhaps unintentionally, is teaching us something about the power of money in politics. He's showing us that money might not actually make as much of a difference as people think it does. And this is good news for me. After all, for each dollar I spend, Magic Mike is spending $3 million. And despite it all, we're both tied in Iowa. Perhaps what Mike hasn't figured out is that belief matters. And money, despite its ability to get a message broadcast, can't buy belief. Heck, even power can fail to deliver in that department. We can look at China for an example of that. In the midst of a viral outbreak, China has been trying to show off the effectiveness of its authoritarian system. They can track people everywhere, padlock them in their apartments, build hospitals in days, and carry out whatever they want with total control. They have all of this power and they're showcasing it, and people are admiring their capability. Just look at the head of the WHO, the World Health Organization, slobbering over these obviously ineffective but over-the-top interventions. But if you think about it for a minute, all this power has done almost nothing to stop the virus. This matters, and not because of the virus. You see, these systems were built to control the spread of ideas. These systems are the bread and butter of totalitarian control. If the Chinese Communist Party can't stop a virus, it might just be that they can't stop freedom, either. And we have been seeing some signs of that. With the rise of the coronavirus, there have been protests on social media. This is a big deal. Everything you say online in China is tracked, with your name attached. But people are so angry at local authorities and the central governments that they are willing to risk very real punishments. One post that has apparently made the rounds, according to the Wall Street Journal, showed a picture of the doctor who was arrested for bringing attention to the virus, and who then died of it. The message below his photo, quote, After today, you may not be able to say this name. This is a brutal critique of everything that is wrong with the Chinese Communist Party. Somebody posted it, and others shared it. And that matters. 
You see, China's defense against unacceptable thought is an army of censors. But just like a real army called in to suppress a rebellion, they can only do their jobs if the soldiers believe in what they are defending. I don't know the details of the Chinese censorship system, but I imagine the higher-ups identify forbidden topics, but citizens work around the officially banned words. The censors can track these workarounds and shut them down, but the censors need to make judgment calls. If they don't believe in what they are defending, then these ideas can, quite suddenly in the age of social media, become impossible to control. This could happen, and if it did, it would be both remarkable and frightening. What about the virus itself? The fact is, we don't know much about it. To get reliable data, we need sources outside of China, and we are beginning to see them. The cases on the cruise ship off the coast of Japan are tremendous from an educational perspective. We have a captive group. We can see how the disease spreads. We can identify everybody who has the disease and we can see what percentage ultimately show symptoms. And finally, we can see how serious those symptoms are. It could be that very few people ever show symptoms. It could be that the illness is just dormant for a long time. Whatever it is, the opportunity to study 3,600 people in a closed environment could prove extremely valuable. So to all you retirees who've been locked in your cabins for the last week, thank you. You're doing a great service for all of us and I'm sure you'll find that that is its own reward. Oh, and for those who say influenza kills more people, that's a stupid argument. Not only does the coronavirus appear to have a fatality rate that's 20 to 50 times higher than the flus, the coronavirus is something new. I'll put it to you this way. Car accidents kill lots of people. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the sale of explosive pogo sticks. There was news outside of China. President Trump delivered the State of the Union address. As I understand it, the president spoke for a while. I don't actually know because I didn't listen. As I've mentioned before, I find politicians annoying. But I did see the pictures of Nancy Pelosi tearing the speech up at the end. Did she do the right thing? I'm not going to judge. I'm going to learn, though. You see, Nancy's actions herald a new age of maturity in our political sphere, and I need to be prepared. So I've begun to plan for my own State of the Union address. I've been giving it a lot of thought. I want to get with the times. I want to speak to Americans in a language they can understand. And if the current crop of politicians is my guide, well, I think I know what I've got to do. Here's the idea. I'm going to walk most of the way to the podium, then I'm going to lay down on the floor and start kicking my feet and screaming. In a world that values empathy over reason and emotion over decorum, I think this might just be the ticket to electoral success. The Wall Street Journal reported another fascinating case of, well, inappropriate behavior. Apparently, Citigroup suspended a junk bond trader in London for repeatedly failing to pay for food taken from the bank's cafeteria. The guy involved, a Mr. Shaw, earned about £1 million annually. For those who wouldn't know pounds from a euro, that is about $1.3 million. I know, $1.3 million a year, and he's stealing from the cafeteria. I've been involved in businesses managing hundreds of billions of dollars. The fact is, it can be very easy to lose sight of the big picture when you make your living on the margins. Put yourself in the bond trader's shoes. His whole life is one mantra. Making money is good. Losing money is bad. He's gotten so good at this that a world-class bank is paying him well over a million dollars a year to make tiny amounts of money on massive debt trades. In this high-pressure environment, the normal guy is the one who steals $10 a day from the cafeteria. It's the oddball who pays retail. 
This is why, in a recent survey of junk bond traders, it was revealed that 30% had cheated on their taxes, 50% were homeless, 60% secured the bulk of their calories from restaurant waste bins, and 80% had attempted to reuse toilet paper at some point in their past. This is just who they are. Some Wall Street types escape the big funds and do something a little different. In recent weeks, data has come out about the Mormon Church's investment fund. Apparently, it has $100 billion in assets. No debt, mind you. $100 billion in assets. To put that in perspective, China has 1.4 billion citizens, but their sovereign wealth fund is only 10 times as large as the Mormon churches. Oh, and there are only 16 million Mormons. To give another perspective, the Mormon church's sovereign wealth fund has twice the assets of the Catholic church. And there are a billion Catholics. Oh, and the Catholics had a 2,000-year head start. Despite all this money, the fund is managed by only 70 people whose salaries are quite low for the world of finance. You see, they're there working in this church office because they're trying to serve a higher mission. The funny thing is that they don't seem to know what that mission is. When asked what the money is for, managers get a little hazy. Apparently, they aren't spending it, but they want to keep collecting it nonetheless. The fund keeps growing due to tithing among church members, and the tithing is important because it is the act of giving that ties the faithful to the church, not the act of spending on the church's part. In other words, the act of giving is more important than the gift itself. Years ago, I ran something called Give Daily. The idea was simple. You'd donate, and every day we'd pool the donations and give them to a different charity, and share a write-up of what that charity did. The point of the organization wasn't to raise money. It was to lift up the donors by enabling them to take part in a charitable act on a daily basis. Of course, we donated the money to charitable causes. The Mormon Church, on the other hand, has taken things another step. You donate 10% of your income, and then, well, it just sits there. You gotta admit, this is a somewhat different take on both charity and finance. Now, there are those of you who hear about these sums of money and come away concerned. You worry about a vast Mormon conspiracy. I know it. But I think you can all put that to rest. You see, $100 billion might seem like a lot of money, but even that vast sum might not be enough to get Michael Bloomberg elected. Thank you, and have a great week.